Do Hulen eris aluba, unroinken spines sasana, August fosarist on abaran, gahard Nois mo vi hum vahasa ke Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. Hello, dear listeners. I'm going to refer to you in the second person plural just out of the hope that people would listen to a podcast together. I feel like that's something people should should do. The cicadas are singing in the trees in a great network. Every cicada calling to every other cicada. And let's also call out to each other in whatever way that we can. So today I'm here to call out to yourselves with some stories from the Grain State going into actually the Silk Road era. It's a bit of a transitional episode, we'll say. As my plan in these first seven episodes, I believe, is to take you very briefly through my view of human history, the way I see it. And because we have patron episodes, like our last episode, episode two, was a patron-only episode about... The Dialogue of the Sheep and Grain from about the 22nd century BCE uh, from a Sumerian clay tablet. We have a, a dialogue poem that tells us all about the essence of the grain state, really, and we're comparing that with one of the last defenders of the grain state in 19th century CE, Japan. And so check that out on patreon.com slash irregnata, I-R-R-E, G-N-A-T-A, that's unruled in Latin, feminine singular. And so it's there you can support this podcast and receive access to all the premium episodes. This time we have a, a public episode and we'll be alternating one by one, I think, just so that you get a taste of each, each sort of stage as I see it. I think I'll do two on each. This is number two on The Grain State, and we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, the creation story there, and also the Japanese chronicle known as Kojiki, which takes you through the, a lineage of sort of gods or, or legendary ancient ancestors of the imperial household as the first emperor to call himself emperor, Emperor Tenmu, uh, of late 7th century Japan. He has started really a a new kind of centralized state which has writing, uses bookkeeping for tax collection and and shipment of goods and and other things. And his brother who preceded him on the throne also fortified the coastal areas, participated in a last-ditch attempt to save the last uh, Korean kingdom. There were three Korean kingdoms. Uh, which were all sort of either subjugated or, you know, Silla actually allies with the expanding Tang Dynasty. Uh, Tang Dynasty China expands uh, its eastern commandery uh, into uh, the Korean Peninsula, and Japan sort of joins in an attempt with certain actors on the Korean Peninsula to stop that. But uh, And that, that fails, but nevertheless, that was... Uh, key impetus for Japan to actually import writing. Japan is unique in not importing writing long after people know about it. People know about writing, people keep written artifacts like mirrors and swords. They'll even have commemorative iron swords with inscriptions made by specialists, but there's no evidence of actual importation of writing, right? Uh, They know about it beginning in the 1st century CE. We have artifacts then made from the 3rd, the 5th, 
And then all the way down to the 7th century, it's really not until this sort of sway tongue expansion and fear of perhaps invasion of the Japanese archipelago that the state centralizes in quite this way and to quite this degree. Um, and definitely the importation of writing. And then after that, you get uh, writing down explicitly, right? The Kojiki and in 712 and then the Nihon Shoki in 720 as versions of oral histories which had been circulating. And so there's, there's books on Japanese writing. David Lurie is, is great. Torkel Dahi has a book about the Chronicles and the Mayoshu and uh, a lot of the other ancient texts. Uh, also, Kaifuso. No one has translated Kaifuso into English, and it plays zero role in national uh, literature sort of histories, right, which as they are codified in the modern period, in the late 19th century, as Japan is modernizing, westernizing, becoming a modern nation state. And that's because it's actually in logographic writing of the, t of the kind that can be read aloud as one of any number of languages that belong to the old Sinosphere. You can actually read a, a text that is in Han graphs, you know, the, the Chinese writing system, as you might say. Uh, you can skip around according to the grammar and like received uh, reading practices of your particular vernacular in your country. Uh, this is true for Mongolia, Vietnam, Korea, Ryukyu, and uh, Japan. So there's a key way in which a, a Han sort of logographic text, as opposed to phonetic, right? It's not a phonetic text. It's, it's a text in, in the grammar of a certain kind of Chinese language. You can read it as the Chinese language. But in fact, in a place like Japan, Korea, Mongolia, Vietnam... Usually, right, you would look at that and just read it in your own vernacular. And right up on down to the 19th century, you have people engaging in complex philosophical and political discussions using the brush, just writing in this uh, lingua franca, which is not a lingua, you know, it's not sounds, it's actually a writing system which is shared by all these languages. And, and in that sense, even the Confucian classics are not in Chinese, right? They're not in any one language um, necessarily. You can, if you have these reading practices, right? And it, you, you can also encode too. So the Kaifuso is an ancient collection, actually the earliest collection of poetry in Japan. And nevertheless, there's not even an English translation and nobody reads it because uh, it's in what in Japan is called kanbun, right? That would be hanwen in Chinese pronunciation, but basically logographic East Asian classical text. And uh, it records exchanges of poems between various Korean ambassadors and Japanese uh, political figures. It actually presents a picture of a very international Japan at this moment but we don't, it's not part of national history as developed in the 19th century when they're already obsessed with uh, rebuilding Japan on the model of the British Empire, interestingly. Uh, we always have to look through, we have to uh, examine the sort of modern lenses through which we might be perceiving any given period in the past or any given phenomenon in the past. So that's a lot of information about the Japanese chronicles right there because I just have that all ready to go. Uh, about the Hebrew Bible, that is very interesting too. There we have another important historical principle that I want to draw up, which is that it's a kind of dialectical idea. When you have a contrast between two things, you have an A, you have a B, and those A and B that you have are going to be constituted, they're going to be co-constitutive of, of each other. The, uh, what the B is depends on the A being there and the A not being B. And what the A is depends on B being there and not being A. And this is true of the Abrahamic religions. You have this complex articulation of many things. You could follow it way back, couldn't you? Because there's a great collection of 
Akkadian literature, right? And Akkadian is the Semitic language spoken alongside Sumerian in various city-states in the river valley of the Tigris and Euphrates, or Mesopotamia, the area between the two rivers. That would be modern-day Iraq. Last time we were looking at a Sumerian text. This time I might draw your attention by way of comparison to the Hebrew Bible to the collection Before the Muses by Benjamin R. Foster, and that's a thousand-page collection of Akkadian literature. Akkadian is in a relationship to Sumerian much like Japanese is into Chinese because Akkadian, like also Hittite as well, and also Old Persian, borrows the Sumerian writing system. And so you get all kinds of sort of bilingual punning and things that uh, the same combination of syllables can mean one thing in one language and one thing in another. And so you get lots of fascinating cultural phenomena that are only possible in that sort of context, which in the Latinate context in Europe, we would call that diglossia, where a Spanish speaker could speak to a French speaker by speaking in Latin. But of course, that is two members of the same language family just speaking using the parent language in this way, whereas Sumerian and Akkadian or Chinese and Japanese, you actually have two unrelated languages which share a writing system. But with respect to the Hebrew Bible, you get in this tradition all kinds of the roots, really, of lots of things in the Hebrew Bible, from the stories of the creation of the world to the great flood to just the overall idea of of a god who would be the patron of a certain household, maybe, or also groups and so on, you, you see very much the model of the Hebrew God and the Jewish people as they eventually arise are in one sense just kind of a version of this. They seem to really have spent some time in Egypt as slaves and then escape and they have this experience of going to the promised land. That literary trope functions in all kinds of uh, Subsequent settler colonial contexts, actually, lots of American pioneers thought of themselves as being Israelites entering into a promised land where they can redo sort of human civilization. But anyway, the idea that there's only one God in the world, there's one true God, is an idea that I don't know of appearing actually before the Amarna period in Egypt. In Egypt, you have a brief period where worship of the sun disk becomes an exclusivist preoccupation for one king in particular, Amenhotep. And this is in the 14th century BCE. That's well before the Hebrew tradition. So this monotheistic idea, there's always been questions. I think maybe Hans Goodeke or some other Egyptologist has a whole article, you know, who thought of monotheism, basically, right? And it looks like maybe it's a dialectical product of different influences, right? You have the Hebrew community going back and forth between Egypt and Mesopotamia, the Babylonian captivity, even later captivity in Persia, where the dominant religion would be Zoroastrianism, which is a very dualistic religion. There are sort of, there's a light power and a dark power who are more or less equal in power, and the Jewish people would have been combining different features, perhaps, of those different religions. We'll have time to go back more slowly and read a lot of Egyptian texts. I have a lot of these, and I can read them with you. That's really great to go back and read things from people so many thousands of years ago that under the British Empire's view of history, we don't tend to prioritize reading that sort of thing. But these are real classics. These are real old ancient literature that you can read and really get a whole different view and a much broader view of human history. So, yeah, we have this thing growing and changing and developing under all kinds of influences, isn't it? Just like everything does in this universe. And the Hebrew tradition, we can see lots of similarities. Uh, Creation, flood, uh, this relationship with one god or another, whether that's exclusive or, or not. And we have certain literary genres that just appear right in 
the Hebrew Bible, like the book of Job has an antecedent in the late period of Akkadian literature, the Babylonian theodicy, a dialogue between a sufferer and his friend. You could connect that too to the Egyptian dialogue of a man with his ba, which is a, a the ba is one of many souls that a person has in the Egyptian psychology. You have a ka, you have a ba, you have an ib, right? And these are different principles that sort of animate you while you're alive and go with you when you're dead. And that actually has a subsequent history in early developments of Christianity, whether you believe. Uh, is it just soul and body, or is it soul, body, and spirit? Is the spirit is the more ultimate principle, and so on. And that brings us to subsequent dialectical transmutations, as Judaism gives birth to Christianity and Islam. But gives birth to doesn't do justice to the way in which the original thing is changed when the new thing is born. Because again, when you have the A, when you just had A and there's nothing but A, in a way you don't have A. You only have A when you have A and B. When there's B, then you look back at A and it's like, yes, A which is not B, right? And in the same way, the text of the Hebrew Bible actually changes quite a bit right up until the centuries after Jesus, in fact, after Christianity has already sort of split off Although, of course, it's composed, I would say, I think I mentioned before, the Hellenistic synthesis is happening. And actually, I just now, I have uh, from Oxford University Press, I have a new English translation of the Septuagint, which is very interesting to look at, because there you get to read the Hebrew Bible as it would have been read in Greek, together with Egyptian religious ideas, which were known as the Hermetica. And this would be the source of Christian ideas like the Trinity, or the resurrection, and together with Indian ideas and Persian ideas and Greek ideas, which are all being combined in a synthesis which gives birth to Christianity, for one, but also the Judaism that goes forward from that time, right? St. Jerome, the translator of the Vulgate translation into Latin, was one who, rather than the versions based on the Septuagint in Greek, he actually went and learned Hebrew and tried to go directly from Hebrew to Latin. And he says in a letter to Pamachius, I believe, that actually when you, one thing that you notice is that a lot of the things that are in the New Testament, the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew has a, a reference to a prophecy that the Messiah will be a Nazarene that is, someone from the town of Nazareth, as Jesus is, right? So, hey, bingo. Chapter 2, verse 23, uh, that Joseph went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. But the problem, uh, Jerome shares with us, there's actually no such prophecy anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. So, where does it come from? It actually comes from Isaiah, chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So like a descendant of these illustrious members of the Hebrew lineage. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. So that last bit would be why it's taken as a prophecy of Jesus by the time you get to Christianity. But where's the part about him being a Nazarene? Well, actually, the second uh, phrase there is Venetzer Misharashav Ifre, and that means, uh, you know, a shoot, a new shoot growing out, um, bearing fruit. So that Netzer, a new shoot, has been misread by some Greek-speaking Jew to mean a person from Nazareth, and therefore Jesus fits the bill. And this particular understanding of Jesus and therefore the Christian religion would be impossible without this mistranslation. About this idea of the Messiah, right? There is a growing sort of sense in the various Hebrew prophets that, yes, God will send some kind of great leader. Or maybe he does this again and again, actually. The main story, maybe, um, particularly as the books are arranged in the Hebrew Bible as opposed to the Christian versions of the Old Testament, right? You get the prophets in the middle and the writings and literary texts at the end, so it gives it a more of a sense of closure, whereas the Christian 
version puts the prophets at the end. So you have this kind of salvation history still unfolding and you feel, oh, it, it, it doesn't have that closure and it's left open. And that openness is then fulfilled by the New Testament coming after it. And Jesus, of course, being uh, interpreted as the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, which in the Hebrew Bible is kind of just more like, well, you know, the Hebrew people keep on sort of forgetting God and turning away, and then they get captured, conquered by some great empire, and then they are led by some great leader that God has maybe helped to raise up for them to return to God and thus to prosper again. So there's that cyclical aspect maybe more in a more original kind of Judaism, which turns into a linear conception at around the time of the empire of Alexander the Great, student of Aristotle, who we mentioned last time. He died in 323 BCE, having conquered at least once, you know, just all the way to India and left behind uh, Greek-speaking uh, kings in each of these locations, uh, printing who printed Greek coinage in, and uh, influenced things like Buddhist sculpture in, for example, the Alexandrine Indian kingdom of Gandhara, which I have a collection of Gandharan Buddhist literature translated into English, too, that I'd love to get into with you. Ha-avike-aloha. But yeah, there's this sense growing that the universe is this battleground between good and evil, right, in some sense. The, the God who created, there is one God who created the universe, and... Maybe he's good and maybe he's evil. There's also lesser powers that are against him. And maybe they're good and maybe they're evil. And what, whether you think they're good or evil really depends on your class position. And this is a great thing to ask, even about the Bible. What is the class position of a literary figure? And one way to see it is God is a good authority figure. And Satan, the devil right, who is not originally in the Hebrew Bible, you can really say, right, there is a snake in Genesis, which we're going to read from in a minute, uh, but he's not, the, he's not the devil, he's not identified as the devil. One of the few places where Hasatan, or Satan, right, actually appears is the book of Job, Eov in Hebrew. But, and that's another composition that has a direct antecedent in Akkadian literature. You can find in Before the Muses, the Babylonian Theodicy. There it's just the voice of a sufferer in dialogue with his friend and sort of dealing with the question of how can I be suffering so much when I am loyal to my God and why is my God not rewarding me and protecting me? And, of course, there's this same question, and it's very much the same structures in Job. And that's actually a perfect example of a book also that was not so important in Judaism until the Second Temple period when it was translated into Greek and took on more of the status of a holy text in the Hellenistic context. And then it was retroactively sort of added into the Hebrew canon based on that. So let me read from the New English translation from the Septuagint. And when the set day came, then, look, the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And the slanderer came with them. And the Lord said to the slanderer, where have you come from? And the slanderer answered the Lord, I have come after going round the earth and walking about what lies beneath heaven. And the word there in Greek is diabolos, right? The slanderer or the accuser, right? That's actually where we get words like diabolical and all of that, right? Although that means something very different in, by the time you get to Christianity and uh, Orthodox Christianity anyway, as it develops even later, the devil as a true rival power to God who might actually like, well, he can't really win, but he gets close, right? And then, uh, so what's the class position? I would say you have... Originally, it would just be like one king of a grain state has a prosecuting attorney. 
his bodies, special bodies of armed men equipped with prisons, etc. And that's who the accuser is. He's on God's side, and he's just kind of a guard dog, sort of. But then, in the age of the ancient empires, people's religious ideas are beginning to reflect the sheer size of these new polities. So you get gods with pretensions to universality coming out. And then you also have, a, I think, a strong kind of spirit of righteous rebellion against these empires. And that's part of what the Jewish tradition provides, even in the Hellenistic world, is, again, this story of you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, defying Nebuchadnezzar, uh, right? You get uh, Esther defying Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, isn't it? Judith and Holofernes and everything. This idea of a morality that sort of takes the, the view from below and takes the side of the weaker power fighting the great empire, isn't it? And you get whole religions like the Yazidi religion actually takes Satan to be that embodiment of fighting against a god of authority who actually is an evil god of authority. But then you get, I think Jesus is picked up as the much more common sort of good rebel god against a Satan who has sort of taken over this world, right? The Satan of the Gospels is a fallen angel, although the detailed backstory would only be found in like the books of Enoch, which are not ultimately part of either the Christian or the Hebrew canon. But... Jesus refers, you know, I saw Satan fall from the sky like lightning. And Satan, as he tries to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, also sort of refers to this world as my kingdom. So we have that sort of assumed knowledge in the New Testament. But it's never spelled out in, in a canonical text anywhere that the devil is this usurper king who has taken over from the real king. And there are many different versions, kinds of what we might call Gnosticism that shake down this relationship in different ways. Maybe it was some kind of evil god or at least an embodiment of ignorance and separation from an original oneness and undivided principle that created the world. And then our goal would be to ascend to spiritual oneness, an original spiritual oneness called the fullness or the play Roma, the Greek word, is imported into Coptic, which is a late form of the Egyptian language, which is the language in which the Naj Hammadi scriptures survive. We can get into all of that much more later, but for now, I just want to paint that initial picture of ancient large empires, and I think this is what gives birth to these monotheistic religions. You have this idea of absolute earthly dominion, and therefore the idea of an absolute heavenly dominion. But then also a great sense that, you know, these uh, great empires are unjust things that are we want to rebel against, and we might have great reasons for rebelling against. And so uh, we get various kinds of rebel figures that are either good or, or maybe bad, depending on our interpretation and our class position, I think. Cosmic imperialism, cosmic insurgency, and cosmic counterinsurgency, we might say. But back to the book of Genesis, we have a classic, what's known in Christianity as the fall of man. Maybe there was an original state where humanity had all of its needs met, but then some transgression happened. It's funny that you can see patriarchy at work in the reversal of the actual natural state of things, right? It's men are all born from women, but Genesis makes it be the woman who is born from the side of the man. And then we also get that sort of the woman was the one who sort of destroyed the original innocent state, which that also, it seems hard to believe that those original conspirators who first kidnapped a bunch of fellow hunter-gatherers and brainwashed them or forced them to become peasants under the very first grain state. It seems a little bit of a stretch to imagine that those were women, no? But it's the woman who has, uh, the God is asking, right, 
Uh, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the snake tricked me and I ate from the tree where she was not supposed to, uh, they were not supposed to eat the tree of knowledge. And so to the woman, God said, I will increasingly increase your pains and your groaning with pains. You will bring forth children and your recourse will be to your husband and he will dominate you. So there is a statement here that patriarchy is an artifact of whatever this original primordial event was. I think patriarchy will have arisen before the grain state. I think we know that. Um, You have sort of group marriage in in societies which still survived in places like Hawaii, various indigenous American communities, places where people would, of the same age group, would be having sex with whoever they kind of want to. It might end up being a lot the same people, but... And then when children are born, the parent that is definitely identified as the mother, and then every male adult of the same age as your mother will be your father, right? So the, in, the monopolization, the fencing off of one or more women as the wives of a given patriarch is something that happens a bit later when you get more surplus that can be monopolized, maybe once you get into pastoral society but probably before the grain state. But these are changes in early uh, human society that are huge, right? But it's actually not early society now, is it? 200,000 years of human society, only the past 6,000 have been under class society, right? And it's maybe only a little bit more than that than we've had patriarchy. So these will leave ancestral memories, and we need to look back at these. And it's real that, that... childbirth pains increase. That is real. Under the grain state, a peasant, uh, birth rates go up, but difficulties in pregnancy also increase. You have much higher infant mortality. This is even something that Hippocrates comments on. The um, the hunter-gatherers in Europe, those uh, poorly developed uh, white-skinned people up there, they don't have children very often, and that is, that's real. That's backed up by the archaeological record. Um, women die in childbirth much more under the grain state. It has to do with how sedentary you are, things like this. So that really was very different before the grain state. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, of this one alone, do not eat from it. Cursed is the earth in your labors. With pains you will eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall cause to grow up for you, and you will eat the herbage of the field. Now, the typical peasant under any grain state can, could, and did often go back to being a hunter-gatherer. They would remember the old ways. They would learn again. Whenever a given empire or a given little city-state anywhere would collapse, uh, you could go back, and people did go back, and their lives got better in all the corresponding ways. By the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread, bread made from grain, until you return to the earth from which you were taken, for you are earth, and to earth you will depart. So we have now a connection to mortality. There is a suggestion here that human beings would not have been mortal even if they had obeyed God and not eaten from the tree of knowledge. Well, that syncs up with a trope about hunter-gatherers that we see in all kinds of ancient literature, which is that they're extremely long-lived. And again, archaeology tells us that this was true. They are very long-lived compared to a peasant in the grain state. Life was only nasty, brutish, and short in the grain state. Of course, another thing that, they, that happens with the fall, disobeying God, they realize that they are naked, right? Adam, I hid, I hid from you because I, I was naked, right? And God says, who told you you were naked? The Lord God made leather tunics for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. Then God said, see, Adam has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now perhaps he might reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat, and he will live forever, So you can't have that, I guess. And the Lord God sent him forth from the orchard of delight to till the earth from which he was taken. So now he has to till the earth. He can't just take from the garden. And he drove Adam out and caused him to dwell opposite the orchard of delight. And he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turns to guard the way of the tree of life. 
So then they have children, and here, this is really key, Cain and Abel. So Adam knew his wife, Hewa, Eve, right? And after she had conceived, she bore Cain, or Cain, and said, I have acquired a man through God. And she proceeded to bear his brother, Habel, um, or Abel. And Havel became a herder of sheep, but Cain was tilling the earth. So here we have another reversal from the real human history that we know from archaeology. So Abel is a pastoralist, and he comes later than Cain. Cain is the tiller of the earth. And then we have this kind of primordial sibling rivalry between the two of them. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the earth, and Havel, he also brought of the firstlings of his sheep and of their fat portions. Here we have another sort of sheep and grain competition. But God looked upon Abel and upon his gifts, but on Cain and his offerings, he was not intent. So God actually prefers the pastoralist here. Maybe the God of the Hebrews really is the God of the kingless generation of humanity without hierarchy and Therefore, he is not as pleased with the products of the grain state. And there's a kind of rehash of the curse that was put on Adam. Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened wide its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. For you will till the earth, and it will not continue to yield its strength to you. You will be groaning and trembling on the earth. And that's indeed what we have, you know, the world of human beings dominating and domesticating other human beings has given birth to all kinds of violence and murder, and it has made life much harder. But Cain is just sort of sent to live in a kind of different place, and then we get a little genealogy of his descendants, where some of them introduce new technologies and other kinds of products, right? The harp and lyre, and a smith, a forger of bronze and iron. Then... Adam knew his wife Hewa, and after she had conceived, she bore a son and named his name Seth, saying, For God has raised up for me another offspring instead of Havel, whom Cain killed. So Seth is the new son of Adam, and that becomes very important in certain strands of Christianity, which are known as Gnosticism, where... Cain and Abel, and then that new Seth, that's identified with Jesus as well. Jesus has a kind of primordial pre-existence, as he does in Orthodox Christianity too, but it's a little bit different. He's, he's seen as Seth, and this primordial scene of Cain, Abel, Seth, and then he also has a female counterpart, Norea. So these are the idea that the new humanity that will be born in the new dispensation when we uh, get restarted. And that's the image that I've borrowed for the title of this podcast. The, the kingless generation comes from the text known as Hypostasis of the Archons, or the Nature of the Rulers, which ends with a discussion of this part of Genesis, a retelling of this, with Seth and Norea being given birth, and then they're the ones who are going to lead it all back to a reunion with God and a happy ending for mankind. And isn't it interesting that we find on the other side of the world in Japan, uh, somewhat later and with perhaps a bit less of a grand sense of narrative and metaphysical heft, we have in the Kojiki. This chronicle from the 8th century CE, a similar story about figures who practice different means of production having a class struggle and one party coming out on top, and that is telling us something about how the society that we have today came into being. The differences that we see with the Hebrew Bible, I would explain by the lack of close proximity to any huge ancient empire, right? Japan is always at a bit of a remove from China, and so we don't have quite these same apocalyptic. You do get apocalyptic cults in China, in the, with the collapse of the Han Dynasty, for example, 1st, 2nd century CE. You get apocalyptic Taoist religions that actually produce some classics. Some of their apocrypha become the main basis for the ideology of the emperor that is chosen again by Emperor Tenmu in the 7th century to found the imperial uh, ideology. It's this kind of Taoist ap- apocrypha 
that is about a king of the heavenly court of the, the constellations of this in the stars, this Tenno in Japanese pronunciation, the emperor of the... The heavenly sovereign is one unwieldy scholarly translation that people sometimes insist on. And it happens much later because this level of state complexity is not reached until this time in Japan. It's not felt necessary. But once we have it, then we want these legitimating chronicles. So the larger story here is the great kind of imperial lineage and also the descent from the high plane of heaven. Once again, the gods are in some high place, and then where we are now is some lower place. And they're, first of all, sort of create the Japanese islands, right, by stirring the sea with a jeweled spear of heaven. And then later generations of gods sort of come down onto the earth, i.e. Japan. And there's a long lineage which culminates in the birth of the first emperor. And then you have the whole imperial lineage leading right down to the emperors of the recent past. So I think I'm going to actually use the recent translation by Gustav Helt, which translates all the names in kind of the way that indigenous American languages are treated often, which does give us access to the meanings of the names, so that's nice. But of course, these gods are referred to in all kinds of contexts by their actual Japanese names, so it can be a little confusing, I don't know. But here we go. So Hodeiri and Hohodemi are born as fire gods in this larger lineage, but then they sort of transform into ordinary human beings, one of whom is a fisherman and one of whom is a huntsman. And the fishermen and the huntsmen do this thing of switching their means of production. And hijinks ensue. Mokrech machu of sud do fogad me Is more and cool summer of nagas Malachte is na hagalasa Aragarig ron of Wallaha. Though a vach and long an anaher So, being a man possessing the fortune of the seas. The mighty one bright flame caught all the fish with wide fins and all the fish with narrow fins. His name in Japanese would be Umisachihiko. Being a man possessing the fortune of the mountains, the mighty one flickering flame caught all the game with coarse fur and all the game with fine fur. And this would be Yamasachihiko in Japanese. And so the mighty one flickering flame spoke to his older brother, the mighty one bright flame, saying, I think we should exchange our fortunes with each other and see what happens. So this word sachi can mean uh, it would be homophonous with the Sino-Japanese morpheme for killing. And it can mean a kill. It can mean actually the thing that you kill. It can actually also mean the tool of the hunt, tools of the trade. So let us exchange our fortunes with each other, okay, and, and see what happens. Though he asked three times, his older brother would not agree to it. Even so, he got him to agree in the end. And so the mighty one flickering flame fished with the fortune of the seas, but he could not catch a single fish. Moreover, he lost his older brother's fish hook in the sea. Now his older brother, the mighty one bright flame, asked him to return the fish hook saying, the fortune of the mountains is a fortune only one of us is fortunate enough to have. The fortune of the seas is a fortune only one of us is fortunate enough to have. I think we should return our fortunes to each other now. So his younger brother, the mighty one flickering flame, replied, saying, when I fished with your fish hook, I couldn't catch a single fish and ended up losing it in the sea. But his older brother stubbornly insisted that he return it. Though the younger brother broke up the sword, ten hand spans long, that was girded by his mighty side, and made five hundred fish hooks out of the pieces in compensation, he would not take them. And though he made a further thousand fish hooks in compensation, he would not accept them either, saying, I still want to get back the fish hook that originally belonged to me. Traditionally in Japan, 
tools like this would be held in great reverence. There's all kinds of religious rituals connected to the tools of the hunt. And if you don't get your lucky fish hook back, right, you, you can't, you would really not, we would really want to get your, your best fish hook back. So now while the younger brother was weeping with grief by the seashore, the spirit current elder, okay, the currents of the sea, right, currents of water, came by and questioned him, saying, what is this? Why are you weeping, child of the lofty sky? He replied, saying, my older brother and I exchanged fish hooks, but I lost his. When he asked for his fish hook, I gave him many others in compensation, but he would not accept them and said, I still want to get back the fish hook that originally belonged to me. That is why I weep and grieve. So the spirit current elder spoke to him saying i have a good idea for how to help you mighty one straight away he fashioned a small boat from tiny woven bamboo stalks placed him in it and instructed him saying when i push this boat out to sea keep going for a while eventually your lordship will come to a fine pathway in the currents of the sea if you go that way you will come to a place whose roofs cluster close to one another like the scales of a fish that will be the palace of the spirit Ocean Majesty. When you reach the mighty gate of that palace, there will be a sacred thick-leaved laurel tree growing by a well to one side of it. If you climb to the top of that tree, the daughter of the spirit Ocean Majesty will see you and give you counsel. So he went out a little as he had been instructed to do, and everything was as he had said it would be. Straight away he climbed up to the top of that laurel tree and sat there. And so then he meets this woman, and they fall in love immediately, and he stays there in the palace, which is, there are many stories like this in the Japanese tradition, but the hero will go out into the sea to some distant island, maybe, but also that's imagined as being at the bottom of the sea, and there you are, what you're actually meeting is spirits of the ocean and or dragon gods, dragon kings and queens down at the bottom of the ocean, who have a palace there. He lived there for three years. Now the mighty one flickering flame, thinking on how this had all begun, let out a single long drawn-out sigh. So hearing his sigh, the mighty one Lady Bountiful Soul, who's his wife, spoke to her father, the sea god, saying, He has lived here for three years without ever sighing once, but last night he let out a single long drawn-out sigh. I wonder what the reason might be. So the great spirit who was her father questioned his son-in-law, saying, This morning my daughter spoke to me, saying, well, yeah. And so with this, uh, he told the great spirit the entire tale of how his older brother had demanded the return of the fish hook he had lost, just as it had happened. And with this, the spirit's ocean majesty summoned together all the fish in the sea, large and small alike, and questioned them, saying, I wonder if one of you fish took this hook. So the fish all said, recently the red sea bream has been complaining, saying, there is a fishbone stuck in my throat and I can't eat a thing. So he must be the one who took it. Now he searched in the throat of the red sea bream and there was the fish hook. Straight away he took it out, washed it and presented it to the mighty one flickering flame. Then the great spirit Ocean Majesty gave him instructions saying, when you give this fish hook to your older brother, say this, this fish hook is an idle fish hook, a feckless fish hook, a beggarly fish hook, a useless fish hook. When you say this, give it to him from behind your back. So this is a curse. He's actually cursing that tool of production, making it useless. Some serious class warfare and sabotage happening on this ancient uh, scene here. Then, mighty one, if your older brother makes his rice paddies in the highlands, make your rice paddies in the lowlands. Because I have charge over the water, your older brother is certain to become a poor man within the space of three years if you do this. So now we're suddenly talking about grain. Notice we had the man of the mountains was a hunter, the man of the sea was a fisherman. But now the man of the mountains has gone into the sea, gotten the help of the sea gods, and now we're talking about grain production. And he's going to actually use magical powers from the water gods to engage in class warfare under conditions that are suddenly basically those of the grain state to dominate his brother, right? His older brother, actually. Isn't this interesting? Normally, birth order would have the older brother uh, be on top. But here, the younger brother is actually using these powers of 
relations of production to actually get the upper hand. If he resents this and attacks you, take out this tide-raising jewel and drown him. If he weeps and begs for forgiveness, take out this tide-ebbing jewel and revive him. Torment and harass him in this manner. So here we have uh, more magic powers that give us the possibility to do state violence, to put down rebellions. And very much throughout Japanese history, people who live higher up would tend to be of higher status in Japan. And lower down, because you'd be more vulnerable to floods, that will actually predict right up to the Edo period, up to uh, early modernity, there actually was problems when Google Maps was releasing historical maps to sort of show what did your neighborhood used to be 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Well, in Japan, that's a problem because part of the modern reforms and human rights uh, legislation was to abolish these old caste distinctions, which by that time acquire all kinds of Buddhist legitimation, and it's people who are tanners and undertakers, people who deal with animal products and death, human dead bodies in, in any sort of way, end up living down by the riverside and down uh, lower. And a map like that would reveal actually very clearly whether people from that area would have been considered outcasts in the past, which is something that you can be legally responsible if you out someone as having such a lineage today. The approach that's been taken has been to abolish these caste distinctions sort of by fiat, which maybe in this case uh, it could work, I don't know. It would sort of be like saying, okay, from today forward, there's no more white people, no more black people in the world. Which, if it worked, it'd be awesome, but, but in modern Japan, people have illegal ways of finding these things out in illicit lists and things. So the geography of Japan is such that that's how class distinctions shake out. So, so saying, he gave him a tide-raising jewel and a tide-ebbing jewel. Then he straightway summoned all the sea beasts and questioned them, saying, a mighty child of the high sun in heaven and, and lad of the lofty sky is about to make his majestic way to the lands above, who will escort him for several days. So he gets on a sea beast and uh, rides up, goes back home, and... With this, he proceeded to follow the instructions of the spirit Ocean Majesty in every detail, giving his older brother the fish hook. So from then on, little by little, the older brother became more and more impoverished. His heart filled with rage, he came to assault his younger brother. Just as he was about to attack him, the younger brother took out the tide-raising jewel and drowned him. When he wept and begged forgiveness, his younger brother took out the tide-ebbing jewel and saved him. After he tormented and harassed him in this manner, the older brother touched his head to the ground before him, saying, Henceforth, I shall be your humble slave and serve as your guard day and night, O mighty one. Thus the various postures he made while he was drowning have been performed without fail in token of submission to the sovereign right up to the present time. Interesting there at the end, uh, dancing is seen as a kind of display of submission. And indeed, in certainly Japanese history, perhaps in other places as well, you have performing artists coming from sort of lower classes. And performance in front of the sovereign is going to be a gift of a, an envoy of submission often by a peripheral region to a central region. Certainly in East Asia, this reflects a much larger East Asian conception of government power which is based on rites, right, rituals, li in Chinese, the rites of Confucius, right? The li ji is, uh, has that word in the title, and it's uh, a very important idea which suffuses all of Japanese culture as well. The idea that a good stable government is going to produce good performing arts, and having those performing arts and putting on them as sort of rituals celebrating good government and also blessing the realm they can actually bring about political stability so we see all of that would tie right into my friend fred's ideas about the state being a organ which arises from class struggle 
and there's an irreconcilable class difference. Some people have, other people have not, and the have-nots must be actively kept in their place. And some kind of violent force is, is required for this. Uh, we see that in the form of these magic jewels here, threat of drowning in a flood. That's the implement of state violence that we are shown here, which is pretty elegant, really. It doesn't say, uh, and thenceforward he would come and threaten him with a spear and make sure that he acquiesced to his subordinate position in society. It becomes more elegant, and that's part of that process of alienation from the actual conditions, right? A state arises from within society that is riven by class struggle and alienates itself from that society and places itself above it, appearing to be above it. Here, quite literally, by means of forces of nature. And then after that, you get the wife of the man of the mountain, right? Uh, who used to be a huntsman, and then he, tra he transforms into this lord of rice production, quite clearly here, using the power of the sea, using the power of some sea god, which it, you can theorize for any one of these stories, like was there some polity that worshipped a sea god that the early Yamato court needed to subsume, needed as an ally, and they absorb those gods and give them a role in this story, this would give the Yamato imperial lineage water powers as well. That would increase this kind of uh, religious legitimating power of this story, wouldn't it? And then there's an interesting moment where the wife is a sea goddess and she comes up to the surface to give birth in presumably human form, but the man of the mountain sort of looks in on her while she's giving birth as she commanded him not to do and because he looked right and saw her in her true form as a sea monster then that meant that she had to leave so there's this absence leaving of the mother figure there which is very interesting i think that would might be connected to patriarchy as well this is a kind of feminine power that is being subordinated erased she has to go away and yet her powers of ruling the water are something that now these, uh, this sun god lineage also has at this moment. And that's the end of book one of the Kojiki. And then book two begins with the chapter on Emperor Jimmu, the first emperor of Japan. So we've gone through two myths of class struggle in some kind of primordial scene of the birth of the grain state, I think. Also some elements of the birth of patriarchy in both the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, and then also the Japanese Kojiki. We see similarities there and also some differences, I think largely because in the case of the Hebrew Bible, we have major influence of really universalizing, totalizing empires that are giving birth to new kinds of religion that, have, that are absolutist and are in the process, particularly in the second temple period of Judaism, the final centuries before the common era begins. As the Hebrew scriptures are circulating in Greek, and it's actually by circulating in Greek that something like the book of Job, for example, becomes legitimated as scripture, and will then become part of the Hebrew canon because of that, right? The A and the B. They don't come first the A, which is totally complete and already is in its full A-ness as we know it. And then the B arises from the A. B would be dependent on A, but A would not be dependent on B. But of course, there's a mutual actual influence as these two things kind of split. Isn't that interesting? And sometimes it can be very helpful to go back before such a split and understand what was it like originally when, when you're innocent of the distinction, say, Judaism and Christianity or Christianity and Islam. So in this process, I would say that a more kind of cyclical view of the relationship of the God of the Hebrews to the Jewish people is evolving into a more metaphysical, cosmic imperialism cosmic insurgency by this Satan figure, a devil. You know, there's like a good creator God who is all-powerful, 
and then there's a an evil insurgent who fights against him and rules the world illegitimately and this this would come from actual political ideas at the time of course there's all kinds of documentation of jewish religious movements which are also very political opposing roman imperial domination over palestine the sicarii the dagger faction i think is one such group the group who leaves the dead sea scrolls in the caves at qumran from which we see religious developments that have are closely linked to politics more cosmic ideas are growing at this time so there's cosmic good and then there's cosmic evil fighting that and then we have another layer of cosmic good that's below that and that would be what's represented by jesus in what becomes the orthodox christian view of the whole thing although of course there are other interpretations these are all sort of ways of solving the problem of evil as we might say so you have an all-powerful god who is good and created the universe and yet there is evil in the universe so this this conception of evil in the universe too i think arises out of class struggle at this time it arises from a morality looking up from below from the bottom of society from a place like roman dominated palestine and saying this is a unjust violent system and we don't think it's right and we develop a religious worldview around that like a cosmic insurgency but the, if you notice that if satan is an insurgent within the larger cosmic imperialism of god which is good right then the counterinsurgency against the devil is also then good because you are fighting to restore the real true king right and this would be ultimately that would be a kind of restoration of just maybe a simpler grain state where you have your sacred king who just is a representative of your own clan god and not this world dominating emperor but there are other solutions to the problem of evil and we see this in some of the many forms of gnosticism some of them are very much like so there's an original unity an original fullness and there's a a faultless kind of just fall by a cosmic female figure named sophia or this wisdom in greek but she leaves an original fullness oneness and that leads to the creation of the world which is kind of a bad thing or it's just about like individuation which is it is what it is for the moment but then uh things will be gathered together again into the fullness or play roma at the end so that would solve the problem of evil in a different way basically it would say that there is a good god but he didn't create the world that's why there's evil in the world and there's an evil god who maybe created the world or at least an ignorant god that created the world my listeners on this podcast are probably going to be native speakers of english and so you'll probably sort of feel like you know you understand all these stories really well but of course it's really great to look at them with fresh eyes as i always have to do whenever i'm called upon to explain this cosmic imperialism cosmic counterinsurgency kind of world view which we take for granted in uh the west we might say when various japanese people ask me to explain it right i have to explain this stuff to people to whom it just seems totally exotic and wild that you would have believe in you know this all powerful god and uh, and then the devil and what what's the devil what's his motivation in this scene how does he work exactly and how does it all work with jesus kind of saving whatever well actually there were many different uh stories about this and we can see how it's pretty different from the world view of the kojiki which has all kinds of peculiarities of its own it has lots of actually continental chinese style presuppositions embedded in it there's taoist ideology big time geomantic ideas about the elements and the yin and yang and and so on that's what that is so it has certain features that the overarching narrative certainly it's very much bears the mark of 
the stimulation of this phase of Japanese state formation by Sui Tang Dynasty Chinese expansion into the Korean Peninsula and the threat of invasion, therefore militarization of the coast and the importation of a bureaucratic government structure known as the Ritsuryo system. And the entire enterprise of history writing is a very Chinese thing, and you can see that too. But both of these stories preserve traces, I think, of a materialist moment, an actual material moment of class struggle and that transition to the grain state and to patriarchy. We see these things uh, still there. These are traces of paleo-parapolitics. The parapolitical is politics that's happening behind the scenes, politics that's not, you know, the president decreed this rule and we're following this rule and enforcing it in this way and it's all fair and the state, which is a neutral arbiter between classes, has decided this and so on. No, actually, there is class struggle. There is a ruling class. They are in control, actually, behind the scenes, perhaps. That behind the scenes sort of comes about by a particular process of ideological formation, making the scenery. That happens in our own time, and it happened in ancient times, and it leaves these kinds of traces. So there you go. You can support this podcast on patreon.com slash irregnata, I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A. Please support this podcast and you will get access to the Thought of Norea feed, which every other episode is going to be a premium episode. Next, we're going to get into the Silk Road. We're going to get into merchant capital. And so for each sort of stage, I'll do one Patreon episode and one free episode. The more people join the community, we can organize and exchange ideas. Meanwhile, definitely organize in person. Reach out to people who are around you physically right now. Make connections. Help each other. Love each other. Be compassionate to each other. Be compassionate to yourself. Give yourself a moment to rest. Give yourself a moment to collect your thoughts. Um, and also realize that your thoughts are just, just your thoughts. Live in the moment. Don't get caught up in structures of dead wood or tangled vines of thought that trap you in old patterns. Listen there. Can you hear the cicadas outside my window here in Tokyo? They're all just chirping away. So let's try to let the tension go from our muscles relax and let go even as we give all our strength and work as hard as we can in these last days to build the kingless generation. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Le'ahi Kai